Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Bible in Order, where we are chronologically going through the entire Bible in one year. Today's reading for December 4th is 2 Corinthians chapters 1 through 4. Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Why else would believers need comfort unless they were in uncomfortable situations? And why does God allow us to be in uncomfortable situations? Verse 4 says he comforts us in all of our affliction or tribulation, sometimes in my opinion mistranslated persecution. That Greek word thlipsis really means pressure, like the force that causes things to be rubbing together. It's used of a narrow place that hems someone in tribulation, especially internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined, restricted, like they have no options. It's the same word that Jesus used to describe the path that leads to life, that narrow or hemmed in way. The way of the cross is a narrow way. It's a hemmed in way. It's not one that's filled with good times and worldly pleasures. Although there's always a season for that. It's one of discomfort, one of uncomfortability. It's through that feeling of being uncomfortable that God ministers to us. He comforts us in our narrow, pressed-in, uncomfortable place so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of narrow, hemmed-in, uncomfortable, tribulation-type place. He allows us to go through it so that we can testify to his goodness and share it with others who are dealing with the same struggles. Now, that's not the only reason God allows us to go through hard times, but it is a good one. The other major reason is to teach us to depend on him. Another reason is to help us to become like him. He loved us in the midst of going to the cross and being beaten and spit upon and mocked. And he's offering us an invitation to be transformed into his image. How else can we be transformed into his image, being made more and more like him, unless we endure some suffering of our own? Jesus didn't just love the unlovable. He loved those who were literally trying to kill him and making fun of him while doing it. Is it too hard a thing for us to love people who we genuinely love, yet we're having a difficult time with for a season, lest any of the believers in Corinth were tricked into somehow believing that an apostle like Paul led a charmed life, that he was above any of this persecution or tribulation. He goes on to tell them in verse 8, I want you to be aware of the tribulation we experienced while we were in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed, he says. It was beyond our strength. It was more than we could bear to the point that we despaired of life itself. That word to despair is almost like despondent, being completely and totally overwhelmed, totally without resource, without any hope of being able to solve that issue on your own, being in a position where it seems as though all life is without even having a point from a worldly perspective to be at a loss, to have no hope at all of getting through it. 
It felt like they had received a death sentence. When you are facing death, doesn't it give you a new perspective? I mean, could you imagine being on death row with a very eminent execution approaching? It's not like our current day when somebody receives a death sentence that they have appeals and human rights coalitions looking out for them and court battles. It wasn't so 2,000 years ago under Roman rule, just like it's not so today in many parts of the world. But imagine being imprisoned, awaiting your death sentence to be carried out, and having no hope. Would it change some of the things that you focus on? Would it change some of the ways you relate to other people? If you knew you had hours left to live, would you care so much about the things that you're giving your attention to right at this moment? Likely not. And Paul says, we got to this point that we had no hope in this life and our only hope was in the gospel. So we have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. And Paul says, and we have a clear conscience, especially toward you, the Corinthians, with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom. In other words, it might not even look right to people in this world, but according to God, we did it right. We did the right thing. And it's time for us believers today in 2023, in December, moving into 24, we need to be less concerned about the way the world judges things and start thinking, can we say that we ran the race with godly sincerity, that we did what was right according to the direction and the conviction of the Holy Spirit? We today so often want to seek comfort but Jesus did not call us to a life of comfort. He called us to a life of laying our own desires down and picking up the cross and following him. Because the truth is God is calling you and me to greatness and comfort is the enemy of greatness. Jesus said, if any of you wants to become great, then lay down his life for his brothers. I am sure Paul didn't feel great much of the time, and yet he's one of the greatest believers to have ever lived because of his willingness to put himself in harm's way, to be extremely uncomfortable because he knew that this life was just preparation for the next. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, For to God we are the sweet fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Our acts of obedience and worship to him, fulfilling the calling he has placed on our lives, are a sweet fragrance. Verse 16 says, To some we are a scent of death leading to death, but to others a scent of life leading to life. That word scent may be translated as fragrance or aroma in your Bible. It's the same Greek word. Our acts of mercy, our acts of ministry, our acts of loving one another, our acts of carrying forth the gospel to God is a sweet fragrance. And for those who are being saved, it smells like life. And for those who are perishing, it smells like death. But they're the same acts with the same fragrance. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people accept it and it 
brings them into life. Some people reject it and it furthers them towards separation from God, which is spiritual and eternal death. It's interesting. This same fragrance is loved by some and hated by others. The only difference between those who love it and live and those who hate it and die is their willingness to humble themselves and accept the truth. They have the same nose, but it smells entirely different to these two groups of people. How can one person love something and another person hate the very same thing? Paul also makes a distinction between himself and others in verse 17 of chapter 2 by saying, We don't market the word of God for profit like some are in the habit of doing. He's not out there trying to make a profit. He's not using people's desire to go to heaven in order to line his own pockets. He's not living in a 10,000 square foot mansion with a pool on the beach as a result of receiving offerings from people who are barely scraping by living paycheck to paycheck. He's not receiving his reward in this life and he's not encouraging and teaching other people to look for their reward in this life either. No, in chapter 3, verse 6, he said, We are ministers of a new covenant, not one that's of the letter of the law, but one of the Spirit. Where the Spirit of God is, there is freedom. We have come to proclaim the goodness of this new covenant that sets people free rather than laying religious burdens upon them. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. And you can have life, you can have it abundantly. And it comes with laying your life down, laying your physical life down, about denying yourself and doing what's right for other people. There's this veil over the law where people just can't understand. If you ask an unbeliever to read the Old Testament, they likely will not get a whole lot out of it. But when they turn to Christ, the veil is removed, and now we can look upon the glory of God with unveiled faces. And as we look upon his glory, as we gaze at his goodness, we should see ourselves being reflective of that goodness. The world around us should see us as little mirrors of God. Over time, we are being transformed into his image more and more, growing from glory to glory, becoming more like him in every way. We have this treasure in jars of clay, recognizing our own fragility, how it's not permanent. We have these temporary and easily broken earthen vessels ministering the glory of God. And we are weak so that people will see he is strong. It's not about how eloquent we are. It's not even about how bold we are in sharing the truth. It's certainly not about our looks or the clothes we wear or our accent or anything else about who we are as people. If anything, the less we have to offer, the better, because then God gets the glory even more. We are afflicted in every way, chapter 4, verse 8, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. We always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus Christ so that we might also be displaying the life of Jesus. And really, 
Nothing else matters. God bless you, my friends. Thank you for being on this journey with me. And for those of you who are interested, I am beginning to offer coaching for those who are in search of a breakthrough in their life, whether it be relationship or career. If you are feeling stuck mentally, physically, or spiritually, and you would like some one-on-one coaching to help you get to where you want to be, go to thebibleinorder.com slash coaching for more information. I am genuinely looking forward to partnering with you in the success that you've been longing for. See you tomorrow.